Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9 today, if y'all want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, I'm going to pick it up in one. I'm going to go probably 11, maybe 13, something like that. If you didn't bring the, the, the Bible with you this morning, I'm going to put them up on the, path, on the uh, screen behind me. It'll be easy for you to follow along with there. Um, every August when I get back, I like to go and go back to the very beginning and touch on some of our elements of our vision and kind of break that down a little bit more and talk about how that plays out here at DBC. Uh, a little while ago, I heard probably what I think is one of my favorite descriptions of a church uh, and of a pastor job description, uh, if you will. It was by another senior pastor. I was listening to him a, a few years back, and I wrote it down. I was, I was like, I love this image. But he was talking about describing what he does as somebody who's on an airplane. And uh, he did this. He's, he's in one of those weird situations where you're sitting in the plane, and, and you kind of got one of those aisles that's just you and one other chair. And he was flying solo that day. And so he sits down and of course another person comes and it was one of those awkward things where you're like, All right, are we going to be one of these talking people or are we going to be like a put the headphones on and, and kind of relax little thing? Uh, he sits down and they start talking. He asks the guy what he does for a living. He talks and talks and talks and talks. And, and then finally the guy turns and he's like, well, so what do you do for a living? And he goes, this is, I think I've told you this one before, but it's like when you're a pastor and people ask you what you do, you're like, that's a defining moment in your relationship. You're either moving forward or you're completely done with altogether, right? You're like, if you're a pastor, you're like, yeah, peace out. We'll see you later. Um, or else you're like, hey, we got something to chat about for the next number of hours. We're together and everything. So he's like, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Guy asks him what he's doing for, what he does for a living. And he goes, you know, it's actually fascinating. He's like, I actually work for the largest nonprofit in the history of the world. It's, it's exceptional. We have tens of thousands of locations all over the world. He goes, I got to invest my life. Like people's lives literally change. Their eternities change. It's incredible. He's, he's like, I get to see once angry and hurting people be filled with love and joy and hope all the time. He's like, I, I get to see broken marriages be restored and families get reconciled and people be set free. He's like, I, I get to see all kinds of really, really different people come together and go to serve their community together and serve the world together. He's like, this happens like all over the place. It's absolutely crazy. He goes, I get to see refugees helped. I get to see the hungry fed and clothed. I get to celebrate with people on their happiest days. And I get to sit with people on their hardest days until happier days come about. He goes, I literally have probably the greatest job in the world. And of course, the guy's sort of intrigued by this. He's like, okay, so what is it you do? Who do you work for again? And the guy goes, well, I'm a pastor at a church. And the guy snarks. He, he kind of snickers at him a little bit. He's like, yeah, bro, uh, I've never really seen that church before. And then he goes, well, I want to invite you to come and be a part of our church then, because the reality is this is what Jesus does all the time when he gets a hold of people's lives. He sets people free, and he takes people who are hopeless, and he fills them with hope. And he gives people grace. And he sets people free from bondage and addiction. And he fills them with joy. And he restores broken marriages and relationships. And he does something that you and I can never, ever believe. And it's my job to go and to be a part of these different things and to see what God wants to do all around the world. It's the beauty of having vision, isn't it? Is that it helps you see a little bit more than what's right in front of your face in the day-to-day, -day, the mundane details of what you may be going through every single day. My hope and my prayer is we go through this a little bit today and that you'll catch a vision for what not only God wants to do in your particular life, but what he wants to do here in the life of Dallas Bible Church. One of the ways that we talk about it, you've heard us for quite a while say this, is that we want to be a church that's included in the 1% of all churches that are experiencing growth through missional activity. We want to be a multiplying 
mission-minded family that is marked by God's grace that brings joy to our city and then glory to God. And so when we talk about who we want to be and what we want to become, we, we acknowledge that we are a family. God's grace and his blood shed for us has made us family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. He's, adopt, he's our adopted father. We're brought into his family. But when we talk about family, uh, we talk about it a little bit differently. We're not talking about the Fockers or meet the parents or anything like that that have a circle of trust. Like no one was able to break into that family. You know what I mean? Like we're not talking about that. We're talking about more like Medea's family when, you know, she hosts a barbecue. The entire neighborhood is invited to her backyard and like everybody in there. And so there's a couple different kinds of families. And like, that's how we talk about family here. We want to be a multiplying, mission-minded family that is included in the 1%. And when I say the 1%, what I'm doing is referencing an article that we really, that God used to uh, really help us articulate our vision a number of years back. But it was an article talking about of all the churches in the country, only 20% of them, and this is long before COVID took place, by the way. Numbers are unbelievably skewed and down and crazy and stuff right now. But long before COVID ever came around, of all the churches in the country, only 20% of them were experiencing growth in any given year. Of those that were experiencing growth, only 1% of those churches were seeing it largely because of evangelism and multiplication within the church body. In other words, they were effective in reaching the unchurched or the de-churched with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's not necessarily the fact that the growth wasn't taking place because it absolutely was, but it was typically taking place through church hopping and shifting around and finding a better place that we'd like to be a part of rather than through missional activity. And so from the very beginning, we've been praying and we've been saying, God, would you help us become a church that is included in that 1%, a multiplying mission-minded family that is totally and completely marked by grace in everything that we say and do, and that from that place of grace that we would go and that we would go and bring joy to our city and glory to God. And so the question that I'd have for us today is, where do we begin with a vision like that? Like, where does a church that is included in the 1% that we hope to become one, one day as we move forward, but where does a church that's included in the 1% begin? I think that's what our passage is going to help us with today. So again, 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. It's a pretty uh, familiar passage if you've been around here for a number of years. Uh, it's a passage that's been around with us from the beginning of how we talked about vision here. It's an obscure passage. It's talking about King David's kindness to a cripple named Mephibosheth. Uh, it's a passage that we've hung on to in all of our vision language because the entire thing is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the same time that it's a model for us to follow as followers of Jesus Christ. And so David, through in this story, is going to represent a type of Jesus, a picture of Jesus. And you're going to even see this in Jesus' life in the New Testament. He's going to be called what? Son of David is one of the titles that's going to be given to him. He's son of David. David's going to be a picture of Jesus in this text in some degree or another. You and I are going to identify more with this crippled name, Mephibosheth. And then Jesus is going to come around a little bit later on. And he's going to call us to do the exact same thing that he and David do as we follow him. And so here's what you need to know as the passage opens up. The whole thing's taking place about a thousand years before the time of Christ. This is an early in Israel's history. Uh, king David is the second king in their history. King Saul was before him. Um, Saul had a short run of, of God's favor before he started growing cold towards the things of God. God's favor fell away from him because of his hardness of heart, and it came upon David. And so maybe you remember this in 1 Samuel 16, David's a teenage boy, and uh, he comes to his father and says, you know what, your youngest son, of, uh, your youngest son is going to be the future king. And so the anointing falls upon David early on, but for the next 25-ish years, uh, king Saul is going to continue as the king, and he's going to grow bitter, and he's going to grow hard-hearted towards David because he's seen the rivalry form up. 
King David's the anointed and it's no longer going to fall through King Saul's line. That's going to create a lot of hostility and tension, uh, especially for his son, Jonathan. Jonathan is going to see his anointing, God's anointing upon David and see Saul's hatred towards David where Saul is trying to kill David for the rest of his days. And Jonathan's going to side with Saul, or I'm sorry, Jonathan's going to side with David. They're going to become besties and friends and he's going to protect him for the rest of his days. And so this is how 1 Samuel wraps up. 2 Samuel begins, and King Saul and his son Jonathan have been killed in battle. This means that it's finally David's time to take over the throne and to begin his rule and his reign. And so for the first eight chapters of 2 Samuel, things are going really, really well for King David. God's favor is upon him. This is before he falls into sin with Bathsheba, and the favor is removed for a while, and everything goes to heck. It goes crazy at that time. But at this point in time, things could not be going better for David. The people love him. He's doing really, really well. People are celebrating, saying this is God's favor. And in the middle of this blessed season, King David comes and he asks a question that the 1% asks pretty much every single day. He comes and he asks this question and he says, Lord, who can I show your loving kindness to today? And what's fascinating about this question is that he's not thinking about the typical people at this point in time. Like he's not, he's not talking about the consumeristic kind of kindness that you and I see a lot of today. The kind of kindness that says, hey, I'm willing to be kind to you. I'm willing to be in relationship with you. I'm willing to be good to you as long as you're also good to me. Or a consumeristic kindness that says, as long as you provide for me a great product at a great price that's convenient for me, you and I can do business. He's not talking about that kind of consumeristic kindness right there. Uh, he's not talking about a, an earned kindness or anything like that. The word that he uses right here is hesed. It's the Hebrew word that is used to describe the undeserved covenant faithfulness of God, or else the kindness and the grace, the mercy of God, if you will. In other words, like it's not his own kindness that he's wanting to show this morning, but it's simply God's kindness that's already marked David's life. And this is what I want us to see. This is the thing that he is passing on that has already marked his entire life. It's 1 Samuel 16 when God chooses David to be the king before seven of his older and more naturally gifted brothers are chosen. And then God goes on to explain it like this. He says, yeah, I don't look at the same things that other people look at. I don't care that you're not the oldest. I don't care that you're not the best looking, that you didn't have the most education or you're not the most qualified or anything like that. Like people look at the things on the outside, power, money, degrees, things of that nature. But I want to know what's happening in here. I want to know what's happening in your heart. Like that's tested kindness and grace that is being poured out upon David from the very beginning. It's the Hesed kindness and grace of God that sustains David in the waiting when Saul is still sitting on the throne and he's patiently waiting in the pasture tending sheep. Right? It's Hesed that makes David pray, Hear me, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for you are my God, and you, O Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in Hesed love, he says in Psalm 86, to all who call upon you. It's Hesed that he relies upon to defeat the mighty Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. It's Psalm 101 when he says, I will sing of your Hesed love and your justice, and to you, O Lord, I'm going to shout my praise. It's Psalm 18 when he sings, the Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be my God and Savior. He gives his king great victories and he shows unfailing Hesed love to his anointed. Point of the matter is, church, like David is a man that is totally and completely marked by God's grace. Like this is who David is. He's a man that like, like the way that I think, it, like it is marked by God's grace. The way that I feel, the things that I, that I sing about, the things that I pray about, my motivations, the things that I wake up thinking about, totally and completely marked by God's grace. And so this is where the entire thing begins. 
And it has to begin that way because like what moves us is what marks us. And what marks us is typically the thing that we're going to multiply, right? We see this, like what moves us marks us. And what marks us is typically what we multiply. It's why I'm a Florida Gator fan to this day. Like to a lesser extent, to a simpler extent, like my dad was a Florida Gator. He was marked by his love for his alumni. I was raised in a home that on, Christmas, on Thanksgiving Day, like we literally divided the living room in half. The Florida State Seminoles went over there. The Gators went over there. We literally decorated our, our living room. I, there was a marked by a love for the Florida Gators that passed on to me. We multiply the things that we are marked by. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. If you're marked by a love for money, and for a love of greed or for a love of things, oftentimes that thing that we are marked by gets multiplied in the people that are around us all the time. You could be marked by anger, and you're going to find that you're going to multiply anger really quickly and really easily. We multiply the things that we are marked by. A little while ago, I was talking with some, a guy in one of my small groups a number of years back, but I asked, him, asked the group to kind of talk about this. Where, like, where have you seen um, markation take place in people's lives that got multiplied, passed on all around you? And this friend of ours, he described this chaplain of a secular fraternity that he was a part of back in the college days, a buddy of his, who he described as being so marked by grace and compassion that this guy was able to see the majority of a secular fraternity at a secular school gladly give up their Friday nights to become mentors towards children in need. And they would go and they'd serve this entire community. And he goes, the majority of a secular fraternity spent Friday nights investing in children that did not have families or places to go to on the weekends. He goes, this is a result of someone who is marked by God's grace and marked by compassion everywhere around you. Uh, and, And so uh, th- this is what we see. This is where it all begins. Like we multiply the things that we are marked by. And so David asked this question, and I want you to see the kind of person that he has in mind when he asks this question. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show hesed kindness, hesed love for the sake of Jonathan? In other words, like he's not just thinking about friends and family here. He's, he's thinking about kindness and grace for his enemy. Like, this isn't just the easy people. This is who he's talking about when he says, is there anyone in Saul's household that I can show kindness to? In other words, like, I'm not just thinking about the easy people, the people that are like me, that, are, that, that look like me, think like me, that I already know and like. Like, I want to know, like, the people that oppose me. Is there anyone in that, that household that I can show your kindness to today? This is who Saul is. Anyone who spends 25 years of their life trying to murder you? Like, not your friend. This is who Saul's household would be. If there was any one remaining of his household. Like it, it's likely that that person could rise up, gather a following around them, try to knock off David from his throne, kill him as well. Like this, is, this is what would typically take place. Like This happened uh, all the time. Like uh, it, It's why kings in ancient times, they wouldn't just kill their opposition. Like They would torture and humiliate them in public in order to show everyone else what happens if you dare oppose the king. In fact, there's a great episode of this in, in Judges chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. But Israel had um, just defeated the Canaanites, and they captured the rival king, Adonai Bezek is his name. It says that they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Reason being, if you've got no thumbs, you're not able to hold a sword. You have no big toes, you're not able to run or lead anybody in battle. And so they cut off his thumbs and his big toes, and here's how King Adonai Bezek responds. He says, 70 kings with thumbs and big toes have gathered scraps underneath my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. In other words, like this is just what you do to people who are your enemy. If people dare oppose you, people want your throne, people want your place. 
People want the thing that you most value and you love. Like vengeance is the thing that you do. You don't just, you don't just, you don't just slap them in the face. Like you sever their limbs and you try to humiliate the opponent. But it's not what David does here in this text because like vengeance is not a mark of grace. Vengeance is not a mark of grace. Like even in the face of an enemy, it's not what the 1% do. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We don't rip other people apart. We don't tear down and destroy it. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, when he says, like, you've heard it said, you should love your neighbor, you should hate your enemy, right? Like, isn't that what, what typically we think about? You love the people around you, like, you hate your enemy. An enemy is an enemy for a reason. Like, you don't want their good. Haven't you heard that, Jesus says, which wasn't a biblical thing, but he says, haven't you heard? Isn't that what's normal? He says, but I say to you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You bless those who curse you and you do good to people who hate you. Why? Verse 45, he says right here, that you may be children of your father in heaven. In other words, like children do what their fathers do. Like children, children do what their fathers do because typically we multiply the things that we're marked by. I mean, Caleb recently wanted to pick up golf. Why? He saw me playing golf with my friends. He wanted to go spend time with daddy. So he was like, daddy, teach me how to play golf. Right? A little while ago, he saw me get dressed up and put on a suit the one time in my life um, for a wedding. And he's like, Daddy, I, I, need, I need a black suit. I, I need to get fancy like you. <laughs> like, like children do what they see their fathers do. And so if that is the case that we multiply the things that we are often marked by, then we who have been given the right to be called children of God should be marked by the exact same grace that has marked the heart of our father. Like, this is what he's saying right here in this text. Like, we think different, and we're people who love different, and we are different, because when you and I were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. This is the thing that marks our lives. Like, when we were still sinners, when we did not want him, he moved towards us, and he gave us grace instead. Paul's going to explain it like this. He's going to say, we too were formerly alienated from God, hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Yet in the middle of that place, God came and he sent his one and only son to come and to reconcile you and me, to bring us back home, to bring us to the heart of the father. And he did so through his physical body unto death in order to present us holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so if that's what God came to do, then who in the world are you and I to tear down and destroy what God came to redeem? Church, let me ask you, like, how do you think about your enemies today? How do you think about the people on the other end of the political aisle from you? How do you think about the people that you argue with that make your life miserable at work? How do you think about the family member that you loathe seeing at holidays because they have made your life miserable? How do you think about the people that, that, that make your skin crawl? I never forget, what, like one of my favorite ministries that I was ever a part of was back when I was doing local outreach ministry uh, a while ago, and I was a part of um, a fellowship called the African Refugee Fellowship. Clearly, I'm not African. Uh, I was working with a refugee group that was new to Dallas. They were largely from Burundi and Rwandan, Rwanda, survivors of the Rwandan genocide in the early 90s. They were relatively newer to Dallas. I was helping them come and gather and get acclimated to life in America, help them gather together as a fellowship. And I'll never forget early on in these days, one of the most difficult seasons that they ran into was shortly after their gathering and gathering weekly to worship and things of that nature, there was a new influx of, of refugees that were also from a nearby refugee camp where they'd come from, but they were of a warring and, and uh, rival tribe. I don't know if you know much about their story, Hutus versus Tutsis, Hotel Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide, and they were moving in. And so you've got a fellowship over here that's coming and saying, okay, now we've got these people and we know back home that they gathered and were on the other side of things. We're trying to kill our families. 
Like we know the pain there and they're trying to come and, and to have the same access to kindness and grace that we had today. It was an incredibly difficult thing for this fellowship. And I'll never forget one of the pastors stands up and he preaches the grace of God, a beautiful proclamation of the gospel this day. And he says, if God treated us when we were hostile towards him in that same way, who in the world are we to treat them any different? You know what this fellowship did? They gathered together their people and they knocked on the doors of these new people coming in uh, from, from that same refugee camp, and they welcomed them into their fellowship. They offered them rides to work. They helped them get acclimated to Dallas. They welcomed them in, and they gave them grace. Church, like, that's what you do when you are marked by grace. And many of us, it's not like a tribal conflict or anything like that, but it may be the ex that left you, that, and they left you high and dry and stabbed you in the back. Maybe it's the partner that made all these promises and then ended up stealing so much money from you. Maybe it's the coworker or the old family. Maybe it's a parent, and they dropped you a long time ago, whatever it may be. Like David wakes up this morning and he simply says, Lord, like who do you want me to show your kindness to today? Like literally no one is off limits, not even my greatest enemies, the people who want my life, the people who are not for my good. Who can I show your kindness to today? And so the story continues, and we find out that Mephibosheth, like he's not just an enemy. It goes beyond that. He's also a social outcast that most people in the world would not want anything to do with. We pick it up in verse 2, and it says, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replies. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? So Ziba answers the king, and he says, There's still a son of Jonathan, but he is lame in both feet. That's who Mephibosheth is. He's not just Mephibosheth. He's not just, yeah, there's a, there's a guy. He's still got a son alive. He's Mephibosheth who is lame in both feet. Can you imagine what it would be like to always carry that label with you no matter where you went in life? You're not just Aaron, but like you're Aaron the crippled. You're Aaron the disabled. You're Aaron the one with baggage. You're Aaron the one who's on the outside. This is who Mephibosheth is. About 12 years ago, I got to visit a village in India, and I told you thing, I think I told you about this, but I, this, is the, uh, this is the stigma that came with disability back in the time. You may remember this even from John chapter 9, but they come across, the disciples are with Jesus, they come across the blind man. You remember this? He was born blind from birth, born blind from birth. He was blind from birth, and the disciples asked Jesus to say, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Like, this is the stigma that came with disability back in that day. And I've told you about the community in India. We came, we came across this community, and it was an entire community of cast-offs that people wanted nothing to do with widows, the stick, and orphans. And, and there was an entire community that, that the rest of the world, like, they wanted nothing to do with over here. It's the homeless man. We talked to a number of years back at our calling who said, like, my greatest problem every single day is not finding food. It's not staying dry. And it's not finding a bed to sleep in every single night. My greatest problem is believing that I still have value as a human being. He said, every single day I walk down the streets and I watch people go out of their way not to make eye contact with me because they can't stand to see who I really am. He goes, that is my greatest struggle in life. Church, like, this is Mephibosheth. He's the cast-off. He's the one that people don't want anything to do with. He's the one that people look at and assume, hmm, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? What did they do to bring this upon him? And so it's not shocking that as we come into his story in verse 4, like we find him hiding or living in a place called Lodabar. 
The commentators note that it looks like he's actually hiding in this scene because if you see where Lodabar is on the map, you're going to find that it's really, really far away from Jerusalem. And it looks like he's doing everything he can to be as far away from the king in Jerusalem as he possibly can. They also make the, po- make, make the point that uh, Lodabar is a word that literally means no word or no thing. Can you just think about this, the irony of this whole thing for a second? Like Mephibosheth, who is a natural enemy to the throne, someone who's a social cast-off from the rest of society, has chosen to live for the rest of his days in a place that literally means no word or no thing. Can't help but think that maybe some of us have been there before. So embarrassed by something that I keep promising God, I'm going to have victory over this thing in my life. That's the last time, God. So embarrassed by the shame of that thing that I find myself running And I find myself living in a place called Lodabar where it feels like I have no hope of ever hearing any word or thing from God again. I mean, for some of us, it may be an addiction. It may be that thing that I keep coming back to and, hey, you've got no victory in your life at one point or another. It may be the fact that shame has set in so deeply in your life that you've literally pulled away from the king. You cannot even open up the word of God or bow before him in prayer or sing an actual song of worship to him at all because you've retreated and you found yourself living in a place that feels like you'll never ever hear a word or a thing from the Lord again. You know what's fascinating about Mephibosheth's story right here? A lot of times we find ourselves in that place because of something that we've done to bring it on ourselves. It's, it's, it's not how it is with Mephibosheth. We read about his story a few chapters earlier, but we find that like, it's not the case where he did something dumb to be crippled himself or his parents did something to bring it upon him or anything like that. It's just not how it is. We read about it in chapter four, but it comes to fi- we come to find out when Mephibosheth was only five years old, news came of his father's death and his nurse, who was trying to flee in haste, who was afraid for their lives, accidentally dropped him and left him crippled in both legs. In other words, like he's not born crippled. He's not doing anything dumb to deserve being this way or anything like that. He was just accidentally dropped by someone who was supposed to love him, care for him, and protect him. Can't tell you how many people talk to today are crippled because someone who was supposed to love them, care for them, and protect them instead dropped them along the way. For a lot of people, it's the church. Cat's a part of a ministry that reaches a lot of people that are not a part of a church today. And the reason they're not a part of a church today is because there's been massive, massive hurt, either by leadership, pastors, people within a church body, and people that were supposed to love them, care for them, protect them, tell them the truth, give them grace, instead drop them either accidentally or by something that they did on, on purpose. Maybe it was a parent who was supposed to love you, care for you, and protect you, and instead they dropped you at some point in your past. Maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was another respected leader, maybe it was a spouse at some point in time, and they promised that they were going to love you, care for you, and protect you, and instead they dropped you. And the pain and the inadvertent shame that can somehow, some way, creep into that whole thing leads you to this place where you're running from the king, and you find yourself living in a place like Lodabar, where it feels like, hey, like I've got no hope of ever hearing any word or thing from the Lord. Again, what I want you to see is that this is who David is looking for to show the kindness, the hesed grace of the Lord this day. And so he calls for him. He calls for him because this is what the 1% do. The 1% go after the one. They see the one. They care about the one. They love the one. 
And so he calls for them. Like, how can you not, church? Like, if God is your father and you too have been marked by his grace, how can we not go after the one? How can we avoid and not even look in the eye the one? This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, imagine that you've got 100 sheep, one of them goes missing. Will you not leave the 99 to go find the one? And of course, the implication is, of course you are. You love the one. You see the one. You care about that one. You're going to move heaven and earth to go in to find the one. This is Luke 19. It's a corrupt little tax collector named Zacchaeus. And Jesus sees him, calls out to him by name, and he goes and he eats with him because this is who our God is. He is a God who sees and loves the one. This is it. Like it's Luke 8. It's a woman who's been bleeding for years. Jesus touches her and heals her because this is who he is. He's a God who sees and goes after the one. It's Mary Magdalene possessed by seven demons. It's the woman caught in adultery who is being humiliated and condemned by the crowds and all the men in her life. It's the leper who had not been touched in years. It's the blind man who was judged and never able to see. It's the hate-filled zealot named Saul who'd be changed by Jesus later on and then would go on to change the world. Church, like this is who our God is. He is the God who sees and he always goes after the one. And so here's David, a type of Christ. Marked by that grace, because this is who our God is, a picture of Christ to come. And he comes and he invites Mephibosheth into his palace. And he says, as Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. Like, can you imagine the amount of fear that you might feel if you're walking into the king's home or being rolled into the king's home, maybe in Mephibosheth's case? You're not able to make it there on your own. Can you imagine how terrifying it must be to come and to face this man where every other king in the rest of the world, like, they're going to have you dead. And David looks at me and says, Mephibosheth, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. In other words, like, I don't care who you are. I don't care the fact that we're enemies. I don't care what the rest of the world says about you. Like, I don't care that you've got a label or that you've been hiding in a place like Lodabar. You can come and you can finally relax because my kindness towards you is based on the merit of another. This is what he just says right here. He says, I don't care about any of these things. Like, I'm going to give you all of the land of your grandfather, Saul. You will eat at my table always, not because it's what you deserve, not because of what you've done, but because your dad, Jonathan, here's the deal. Like, Jonathan was my boy. Like, when Saul wanted me dead, Jonathan protected me. Like, when when, when no one saw my anointing, Jonathan saw it, and he believed, and he stood by my side. I made a promise to Jonathan, and on the basis of my love for Jonathan, my faithfulness to Jonathan, my, 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 my promise to Jonathan, you can take it to the bank that you will receive my kindness today. Church, can I just tell you, like, my relationship with the Lord exploded when I realized this is exactly what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. John's going to put it like this. He's going to say, in this is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Used to be really intimidated by that word for the longest time. It was one of these big churchy words until I began to dig in and discover that all it means is that the the just wrath of God against our sin has actually been satisfied and he is appeased and satisfied with you and me. Not because of anything I've done to earn it, but simply because his kindness towards me is based on the merit of another, his one and only son, Jesus Christ. That's why Paul's going to say in Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, like every bit of it's been taken care of already because of what God's done for us in Jesus Christ. Like when you and I were in the exact same place as Mephibosheth, enemies of the throne, crippled, incapable of coming to him in and of our own strength, running away, 
hiding in a place like Lodabar, God sent us his one and only son, Jesus, the better Jonathan, to come in and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. He willingly went to the cross and he suffered and he bled and he died as a substitute for you and me. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive, proving that he is the son of God. He has power over sin and death and he invites us to come and to eat at his table all the days of our lives. And so in the middle of uh, this fear and this alienation, in the middle of Mephibosheth finding himself in Lodabar, David breaks through every single social barrier you can imagine in order to show the kindness of God. And I love Mephibosheth's response here. It says, overwhelmed by grace, it just says that he falls to the ground. And he says, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? What is your servant? Who in the world am I that you would look at a dead dog like me and give me kindness and favor? I don't know if you've ever had that experience with God's grace before. Or if you remember that time when you were first marked by his grace and it all came together for you. I remember for me it was... 16 years old, Enchanted Rock High School retreat in the youth group that day. And I remember sitting out underneath the stars, hearing the preacher preach, and there was nothing special about the evening except that that was the night that God came. And all the messages that I've heard about his grace began to click, and it began to come real. And I'll just tell you, like I was one of those kids, still am, still battle with it, just one of those performance-oriented, shame-oriented, I'm never going to be good enough kind of people. And in the moment of of, of understanding the truth of his word, came to understand that God's favor and his goodness and his kindness is on me, not on the basis of anything that I've done to deserve it, but simply because Jesus came and he got it all right on our behalf. And I remember sitting there that night, that simple thing that we sing about so much today, but it became so real that day that I just wept and wept and wept and never got over it. Came back devouring God's word. I need to know this God who's marked my life. Remember singing and songs took on new meaning because of an understanding of his grace. Like, do you remember that time? Has that ever taken place where you've been so marked by his grace that it makes a brand new you and a brand new understanding where you're sitting there going, beyond anything that I could do, anything that I can imagine, God, it's you and me. This is what you've done for me? Who am I that you would regard a dead dog like me and give me kindness and invite me to your table? Who in the world am I? chapter wraps up and it says that he went on to eat at the king's table as one of his sons for the rest of his days. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the promise, the invitation that he gives us in Jesus Christ. He goes on and he eats at the king's table as one of his sons. And you know, like if you're eating at the king's table as one of his sons, like he's not, you're not eating spam and bologna and like that's not what he's serving. You know that, right? Like he's giving you the good stuff, the beef ribs that I smoked last week, which were exceptional, just so good. And the filet mignon, or maybe it's the avocado toast for you, I don't know, but the good salad. Like this is what you're eating every single day. If you're eating at the king's table, as one of his sons, one of his daughters. And it all began with a man who was so marked by God's grace that he woke up one day and he said, God, who? Who can I show your kindness to today? Lord, no one's off the table. I don't care if you're giving me an enemy, a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care if it's my neighbor that we fought with forever. 
I don't care if it's that person that I work with that's made my life miserable, that parent who dropped me, that spouse who dropped me. Lord, is there anyone in your household that I can show kindness to today? Church, this is where it all begins. This is where people and a gathering and a church of the 1% begins. It's not in strategy. It's not in guilt trips to go in and take a mountain or something like that, to go do, 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 to become, to go win everybody over first and foremost. It begins right here, men and women sitting in a room, them and their Savior totally and completely marked by his grace to the point that it controls every bit of how I think, how I pray, the songs that I sing, the things that I do, that we would gather together as a gathering of people marked by his grace, that we would exist for the joy of our city and for the glory of God. This is where it all begins. It's not programs and it's not challenges. The 1% are marked by the grace of the one. And so they love the one and they care about the one and they go to the one and they see the one. And then they spend the rest of their lives doing that exact same thing, going to the one and then going to the one, all for the joy of the city and for the glory of his name. May we be a church that is marked by God's grace. I'm not giving you strategies and I'm not giving you things to do. May you be a man, may you be a husband, may you be a child of God, may you be a wife, may you be a mother, may you be a woman that is totally and completely marked by the grace of our King. Father, we love you, God. God, we love you. When we were enemies, outcasts, far from your presence, hiding in Lodabar, you sent your son Jesus to come and to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God, I praise you and thank you for the invitation to come and to eat at your table every single day for the rest of our lives. And God, I pray that there wouldn't be a person in this room that would avoid that invitation today, that we would gladly come and feast at your table every single day, God. For the person that's come in today and Maybe you've been hiding, maybe you've been running, maybe you've been keeping yourself at a distance forever. May you hear the invitation of the king and understand for maybe for the very first time that his kindness towards you has very little to do with you. His kindness towards you is based on the merit of another. Jesus got it right on your behalf. And because he did, and because he suffered and died as a substitute for you on that cross, You are invited to his table every single day to eat and eat and eat and eat and be satisfied. If that's you today, would you say yes to him? The word of God says, if you will simply come to him in genuine faith, however you may do it, not a magical prayer, but saying, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you for the very first time. Your merit, not my own. The word of God says, if you come to him in genuine faith, turning from the old saying yes to him, you will be saved. You will have the opportunity and the invitation to eat at his table for the rest of your days. For the rest of the church, maybe you've had that experience with his grace. Is there anyone that God has brought to your mind who may be the one that you need to wake up tomorrow and the next day saying, God, may I show them your kindness, your hesed, your loyal, your faithful love. May we be a church that is marked by that grace. 
And may we be a people that multiply the grace that has marked our lives. God, we love you. We praise you, God. We thank you this day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.